0: Hi, welcome to Creeks to Peaks the Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians both near and far who are doing amazing work in their respective fields, many of whom you may not even know about. Our goal is to bring your attention to these individuals, their stories, and how they connect to the state. In forestry terms, the understory means everything underneath the canopy, and those are exactly the people we're trying to highlight. Maybe not household names, but stars in their own right. So join us as we talk to our guests about who they are and where they come from. This podcast is produced by Flag Spruce Initiative, a West Virginia based nonprofit whose mission is to invest in and advocate for the education, environment, and economy of West Virginia, or what we refer to as our three E's. To donate and find out more about Creeks to Peaks The Understory and Flag Spruce Initiative, visit www.flagspruce.org or follow us on Instagram. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2 of Creeks to Peaks The Understory. In part one of another two-part interview, we introduce you to Lonnie and Ellen Thompson, who are world-renowned glaciologists, climatologists, explorers, and West Virginians. The Thompsons have not only been celebrated the world over for their polar expeditions and research in places like Antarctica, Tibet, and Mount Kilimanjaro, but they've also been married to each other for just over 51 years, which is in itself no small feat. Still serving as professors at Ohio State University's Bird Polar and Climate Research Center, the Thompson Studies have been influential in helping us understand global warming and climate change since the 1970s. Their combined awards and accolades include the National Medal of Science, the Seligman Crystal, the Benjamin Franklin Medal, the Commonwealth Prize for Science and Innovation, and the Distinguished Explorer Award of the Roy Chapman Andrews Society. Honestly, there are so many more, but I'd rather you get to hear from these incredible individuals yourself. So please enjoy this unbelievable conversation as I did. And as always, take a listen. All right, let's get this started. Uh, Today I'm joined by Professors Ellen Mosley-Thompson and Professor Lonnie Thompson. Thank you guys so much for sitting down with me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to say you guys are the first couple that we've interviewed on the program. So this will be this will be a unique experience. I'm really excited to see how it turns out.
1: OK, great. Excellent.
0: Uh, if you don't okay. mind, I'll get into some of uh, your awards and accomplishments in a little bit. But can we talk about growing up in West Virginia and just what it was like <laughs> for both of you as a separate ent- entity and then how you guys met? Ellen, do you want to start?
2: Sure. So I grew up actually in the big town of Charleston, West Virginia, which is the state capital. It's right on the Kanawha River. So my education up through 10th grade was right there in Charleston. Went all the way, you know, started at Lincoln Elementary, J.E. Robbins Middle School and Stonewall Jackson High School. But then my parents moved to Lanes, yeah. which is closer to Nitro. And so my last two years, I went to Nitro High School. Um, And then after that, I went to Marshall University for four years before I ended up at Ohio State University. But, um, yeah, I have always been very proud to be a West Virginian. And it's amazing when you get two West Virginians who don't know each other at all together, how many things they can can find (laughs) to talk about. That's true. It is so true. (laughs) And and I just love that.
0: And it's usually, you know, one degree of separation and maybe no degrees of separation in terms of people you might uh, know as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, did you grow up interested in science from a young age?
2: Yes, I was. I was. I wouldn't say I was always interested in science, but I would say from probably the middle part of grade school, I got interested in science Part of that was the fact that my parents encouraged me to enter in science fairs. As every parent knows, the science fair project is actually the parent and the child, not just the child. And so it, it actually was a wonderful way for me to bond with my parents and for them to bond with me. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, I was always interested in science. Okay. And I think when Lonnie starts talking, you'll find out that science is at the core of his background, too.
0: OK, yeah, I've heard some stories from some of the YouTube videos that I've seen in the past, and yeah. it sounds like you have some interesting uh, background from a young age as well. Yeah. Tell us about growing up in Gasaway.
1: Well, Gasaway, when I was, lived there, it was about 2,500 people. Last I checked, it was nine hundred and fifty-one. Okay. So, uh, but it was a thriving town in that it had a uh, railroad switching station, and and t- Saturdays when all the people would come into town and markets, and so it was a great a great place to, to grow up. Uh, and I grew up on a on a little farm outside of Gasway. We uh, uh, inherited the land and. Uh, my dad and I and my brother and my mom, and sister, we built the house. Really? And ground up. I mean, it was initially a three-room house. Yeah. And then we added... Tar
2: paper. Tar paper. Tar
1: paper shack. <laughs> tar and house. then we added bedrooms on and living room and uh, put in a basement. And uh, and we essentially had a small farm. We, we grew food for the winter. And we had potatoes and... Uh, we had a, a garden and, you know, it was long before organic farming existed, but we didn't put chemicals on our plants. So, sure. so it was a very healthy way to to grow up. It was a struggle in the beginning. Uh, my dad, he was an electrician, but he had a heart issue that he developed in the military. And so it was hard to get a good job. But he spent a lot of time working up in the uh, and Elyria in Ohio. And so we would spend some time when I was growing up living in Ohio, but we always went back to the farm. So I really got interested in science in the sixth grade. I had a teacher, uh, Mr. Underwood, who was uh, really interested in science, and he got me interested in weather and calculating dew points. And that led to putting up a weather station in my barn. Uh, We had a couple horses. And I kept weather records in the morning and evening. And back then, you could get a daily weather map from the NOAA National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration. And so I learned to forecast these patterns that they moved across the U.S. And so I would bet my lunch money to other, you know, it's going to rain tomorrow. And you know, the students, ah, no, no, no. Tomorrow, it'll rain, a quarter and, uh, <laughs> and I have my lunch money and then the neighbors would call my mom in the morning and say, Ask Lonnie, what's it gonna do today <laughs> and so uh,
0: they probably still talk about that legend back in Gasway. well
1: I don't know about that but uh, but it was uh, it was a great place to grow up yeah I mean the woods I mean at that time you uh, parents turn you out in the morning says dinner is at seven and you go and wander the mountains and woods and play with your neighbors and
0: it was a young scientist and explorer's dream
1: it it couldn't it couldn't have been better and and in so many ways i think it really prepared me for the life i've led working in these re- remote parts of the world how so because when you get to know local people indigenous people they are so similar their values of land everyone in gasway valued their property, even though the property itself really wasn't, in the big scheme of things, worth that much. Mm -hmm. But to them, it was their livelihood. And I see this play out in the Andes of South America, over in Tibet, New Guinea, uh, Africa. I mean, this basic connection that humans have with the land. And I believe that they have a much better understanding of the value of things like good water and climate and protecting that.
0: Yeah. Okay. I I appreciate that answer. That's good. So both of you ended up going to Marshall University for your undergrad. Ellen, let me ask you first, what made you decide to attend Marshall University?
2: I didn't really know where I wanted to go, but I knew I wanted to study physics. I knew that from the 11th grade on. And often when you talk to people, they'll point to this one professor who just excited them, and somebody that you just admire. And I had a my physics uh, professor in high school. I still remember he was a doctor. You didn't get many people with PhDs teaching high school, sure, like in Nitro, West Virginia. Yeah, but Doctor Shank really had a way of explaining physical processes, et cetera, and I just became excited about it because I didn't know very much and I thought this is a really right field I'm going to be able to learn a lot and he knew some professors down at Marshall and he said I think Marshall would be a really good place for you now I was in the situation that I couldn't afford Harvard or Princeton were just on they weren't even though I had great grades yeah. at the time they just weren't possibilities and usually in West Virginia unless You have uh, parents who have more resources than ours had. You go to the local. You either go to Marshall or you go to WVU or some of the smaller colleges. Right. And so when I went to Marshall, I enrolled immediately in physics. Now, this isn't at that time. You actually had to apply and compete for a position. It wasn't open enrollment the way it is. Here really? well, used to be at Ohio State, we had open enrollment. Now s- students have to meet certain criteria in order to be admitted to either the undergraduate program or the graduate program or whatever. But at Marshall, it was very competitive. So the seat, that's what you had. I had a seat in the physics department for four years if as long as my parents and I could muster the the tuition money, that as long as I met all their expectations, I would have that. So, at the same time, that was the same year that Lonnie came to Marshall, but uh, he started in geology. The thing I would say is, I started in physics and I graduated in physics and math. So, I didn't really deviate too much. And that Kind of the way my life has been. I got the goal. I see it out there, and I kind of work my way toward the goal. I don't do too much zigzagging like a lot of people do. Maybe my life would have been more exciting if I had done more of the zig and zag. <laughs> you know, who knows? But maybe I wouldn't have met Lonnie, and I've if I hadn't shown up here at Ohio State and become a member of the Bird Polar and Climate Research Center. I would never. I would likely never have had the opportunities that I've had to work in my on my own field projects in Antarctica and Greenland, et cetera. That was never something I really thought about because it wasn't on the radar as even a possibility till I got to Ohio State.
0: When you went to Marshall, that was was that the late sixties?
2: Sixty six. Sixty six. Graduated in seventy.
0: Was it unique or uncommon for? Women to be interested in you know physics and math in the sixties and, and want to pursue a science degree.
2: Well, I would say this. I would have initially maybe fifteen or twenty years ago, I would have told you yes. Okay. But one of the things that we've found that they're finding now is that many women have interest in science, but in the middle school years, grades seven, eight, and nine, they self-select, and a lot of women young women, select themselves out of science. It's a, tr- it's a total tragedy.
0: What do you think can be done to help change that?
2: One of the things they need is more mentors. They okay. need to see successful female scientists at an earlier age, not just when you come to the university, but to have those mentors who say to you and demonstrate to you, you can do this. So, yes, I was only the second uh, graduate of the Marshall of Marshall's physics department. Really? And the first graduate was the daughter of the chairman of the department.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Yes. Okay. And I can tell you a little story if Please. you have a minute. Oh,
0: I've got the time.
2: I had just arrived there and I got the note that Dr. Martin, who was the chair of the physics department at that time, wanted to see me. Now, this is back in the day when your professor wore a jacket, a white shirt, and a tie. And they were, yes, sir. I didn't have any. I don't know that i thinking back. I don't think I had a single female professor in my entire career at Marshall, four years. And he called me in and he said, I want to have a very serious conversation. So, yes, sir, I'm here. And he essentially said, I want to assess how serious you are about this because you have a seat in this program, but I want you to know it's competitive and the seat you have could have been had by a male student who's going to grow up to be a breadwinner and you're likely going to find somebody in college, get married and go have children and stay home. I was so insulted. Understandably. Understandably so. So you can see why women who are talked to and treated that way, maybe that another woman would have said, maybe I'll look for something else. And that was
0: after you had accomplished so much up to that point as well. It wasn't seventh, eighth, ninth grade. That was college.
2: Yeah, that was college. You had
0: earned that seat.
2: Yep. So I just I had to be respectful because you never disrespected your professors. And I said, yes, sir. I understand exactly what you're saying. I want you to know that I'm very serious about this. And I rarely start something that I don't finish. I have every intention of finishing. And he looked at me and he said, I believe you. And we won't talk about this again. Welcome to the department. And he never mentioned it again. And throughout my career there, I, I never felt that I was treated unfairly.
0: That's good. Yes. That's good. It's, yes. it's amazing those moments that stick with you right. throughout your life and career. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah.
2: Well, as a mother of a daughter who's in a male-dominated profession, you know, I'm very sensitive to this. And Like right now, Lonnie and I have four postdocs, four postdocs, three of whom are women.
0: Wow. That's great. Yes. That's wonderful. And that's
2: something that we have really worked hard on is having women be an integral part of our program
0: here. Great. I'm actually going to follow that up in a few minutes. I have some more questions about that. Lonnie, let me ask you, what took you to Marshall?
1: Well, first of all, I I should say that my real interest in education came from my mom. Okay. uh, Because she only had an eighth grade education. She had to leave school to take care of her dad who was dying of cancer. But she always told me that you know, if you study and you work, you can change your life. You don't have to accept what the options are here. And she told me that, uh, and then and, uh, by, the, and by the time I got to be a senior in high school, my, my dad passed away. And back in that time, the, my dad had this, this rule. He earned a living and mom took care of the kids. Mm-hmm. So here's mom with three kids and it hasn't worked. And so this was a real tough time. So getting to go to Marshall was really dicey. And I was fortunate to have a scholarship and I knew that I was going to go into science. I didn't know what science, uh, but that was That's that, what interests you. That was where my interests were. Yeah. And so when I, I went to Marshall, I would say I spent the first couple of years really catching up with the rest of the students. I mean, we had some really good teachers at, uh, in Braxton County, and a couple of them were stood out. And a chemist teacher went on to become a medical doctor. And there were eight of us who hung out together, and, and no one in Gasway went to college. All eight of us went to college. Wow. And some become doctors, become chemists. But we competed with each other. and But it was a very uh, supportive type of c- competition. And so I, I went to Marshall because my brother, who graduated the year earlier, was already at Marshall. And we thought we would share the an apartment and we could share expenses. And that didn't work out well because my brother was at that time more of a party guy and, and I couldn't keep up with my studies so I ended up having to go get my own place sure and uh, he went on to uh, flunk out uh, of college <laughs> uh, and he got he got married and uh, and eventually he came back and he got a degree in engineering it, it was never an issue that he couldn't do it yeah uh, he just had other he things. was enjoying he, himself he, he, away from gas away uh, exactly <laughs> and and then after 20 years as an engineer, he went back to Duke and became a minister. Really? And he has, uh, right now, he has three churches in North Carolina. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I always, when I go down and I I, I meet with him and on Sunday, sometimes he will have me up. And, and I always tell the congregation, you really want to know about this guy? <laughs> 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 um, but when I was at Marshall, I, I had... I took a class, an evening, a night class in geology, and it was with the chair of the department, and he was a graduate from the University of Chicago, and he had a business where he made these uh, posters of resources in West Virginia, and then the uses of those resources, you know, things you can make from coal and the different minerals, and and so, sitting around the table on Wednesday nights with other students putting these together we talked about geology and you know it dealt with big things it was outside I didn't see myself sitting in front of a computer somewhere the rest of my life and so geology was a good mix and then of course growing up in West Virginia uh, coal was the thing and I uh, I thought that my future would probably be in some type of coal geology.
0: Yeah that makes sense coal was king especially Georgia. at that time. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Okay. And then, so you you guys just celebrated your fiftieth wedding anniversary a few weeks ago, correct? That's correct. That's true. Congratulations! Well, but four years of college until the very last year, you guys you guys had never even met each other at a small university. That's correct. That's that's pretty
1: interesting.
2: I think we had our noses in the books.
1: Fair enough. Okay. Uh, her, her department was on the first floor. Mine was on the third floor. Okay. Right. <laughs> For
2: four years, and we did, We never crossed paths. We might have crossed paths, but we didn't recognize each other. Sure, you know, yeah. You see somebody at the water fountain, maybe. But
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Have you heard about the National Youth Science Foundation? National Youth Science Foundation, or NYS Foundation, is a nonprofit 501c3 corporation established in 1983 to provide STEM-focused programs for students from all across the country and around the world. Located in West Virginia, the NYS Foundation's flagship program, the National Youth Science Camp, is a four-week session in the mountains of West Virginia that combines some of the brightest students in the country with top-notch scientists for lectures and outdoor adventures. Their mission is to inspire lifelong engagement and ethical leadership in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and related professions through its proven educational model for mentoring, challenging, and motivating students. If you're interested in learning more about this amazing program or are interested in donating to their cause, go check them out at nysf.com or visit them on Instagram at nysacademywv. Now let's get back to the podcast. So after you guys graduated, did you guys follow each other to Ohio State? Is that how that worked?
2: Well, there was a little detour.
1: Okay. Did you want to tell them how you, we met?
2: No. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, well, all right. Um, they, That's
2: TMI. Uh,
1: when I graduated from Marshall, I had an offer for a teaching associateship graduate school here at Ohio State. Okay. But this was time of the Vietnam War. And so... I was, I had got my notice, I was going to have to go to military, and it was... Uh,
2: Your number was very high.
1: My, my number was, yeah, I was going... Well,
2: low, I guess. It
1: was low, and I was going to go. And, but then, two weeks before I would depart, I, I, I got an offer with the West Virginia National Guard. And so, the beauty of that is that, yeah, it's six years... And you have your—you have to go for your basic training, but it's six years, and you do your uh, weekends and your summers. But you can still go to graduate school. And so I started uh, in the West Virginia National Guard, and then when I came to Ohio State, I transferred from West Virginia National Guard to uh, Ohio Army Reserve unit down here at Fort Hayes. Okay. So, of course, we're just close to the university. And so I was able to continue my education and at the same time fulfill my military.
0: Good deal. Yeah. So you graduated in physics, Ellen, and then you graduated in geology. What, and specifically coal geology, what made you go towards glaciology and paleoclimatology? Are are those the two disciplines that you guys focus on mainly?
1: Well, when we came to uh, Ohio State, we got engaged when I was at Fort Leonard Wood, and, then, okay. and when I came back to take my graduate studies position, Ellen took a job downtown. And so I, I started in cold geology because we they had one of the most famous professors in cold geology at Ohio State at that time, worked for the US Geological Survey. and But my first quarter, I got an offer in my mailbox For a research position in what was then the Institute of Polar Studies, now the Bird Polar and Climate Research Center.
0: Where we're sitting today.
1: Where we're sitting today. And it said that they had a research position open for the study of ice. And I had had geomorphology, I knew ice only covered 10% of the world's land surface and it was in places where people didn't live. And frankly, I couldn't see how you could possibly make a living looking at ice. But it was a research position, which meant that I could concentrate on my studies, do my master's, and get out and go for my job. So I took it, and it took about a year and a half of working with ice to start to understand what might be possible. And uh, and, and my first trip to Antarctica was when I was a master's student, 1973, 74, wow. bird station. And when you fly over Antarctica, you realize how important ice is yeah. on this planet. I mean, it's bigger than the U.S. and Mexico combined, and it's 98% ice covered. Wow. So it was a real eye-opener. I
0: can imagine.
1: Yeah.
0: I can imagine. So that shifted your perspective from then, from then on out.
1: It, it changed my view, uh, but I didn't stay in the polar regions. Uh, I did my dissertation comparing the very first ice core record drilled from Camp Century in Greenland okay. in 1966 with the very first ice core record drilled through West Antarctica in, a, in 1968. And it was in comparing those two records that it became obvious that we needed something in between. To connect the poles, and that connecting the poles was really where my career took off. Wow, Ellen. What
0: about you? How did you get into this field?
2: A circuitous route. (laughs) 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 So, while Lonnie was at Fort Leonard Wood doing his thing, his basic training, which my father did his basic training at Fort Leonard Wood before he was shipped to Europe during World World War II. II. Okay. So Fort Leonard would would, that had already been discussed in my household extensively. I'm sure. So anyway, I took a job. I well, I I took a job teaching middle school mathematics in on the west side of Charleston, West Virginia. It was nothing like the east side of Columbus. Let's put it that way, but. It was a pretty rough section for West Virginia. Sure. Uh, and so I, I finished up uh, the uh, that year for a teacher who was on maternity leave. Okay. Just as an aside. Yeah. To get us out of the building on the last day of class, the police had to come. They put chains on the doors and locked us in because the students were trying to get in. Yeah. They had pipes, et cetera. They're very upset.
1: What were they upset about?
2: Who knows? Why? I have no idea, but this was during well, the was Vietnam,
1: Vietnam War. But the the Vietnam War. It's just like wow.
2: Marshall. We got locked out of our buildings on the Marshall campus. Remember yeah. that? They chained the doors, and uh, we weren't allowed in, in. We didn't go to class because it was too dangerous. Was well, this kind of the same thing. Over in this section of Charleston, and then the police had to round them all up and get them out of there, and then escort each of us to our cars.
0: So you guys were locked inside the building, is that correct? While yes. they were outside, yes. Wow.
2: Well, we were locked. They locked us in, so the students couldn't get in. Right. They that's, had to lock the doors. That's Let's amazing. Put it that way. Okay. So I finished up teaching on that note, and I thought, well, that isn't what I want to do. I didn't find that very interesting. So I had an assistantship to go to Miami University over here in Oxford yeah. in the physics department. They had a nice high energy physics program. So I came over. It was all great. Pretty much paid for. You know, I had to do teach little classes and labs and things. And... I don't know where you were still doing your military stuff. And that was a real eye opener because I was, again, the only woman, of course. And the guys treated me just great. No problem there. But they, some of them had been pursuing their Ph.D. for four or five, six years, and there were no jobs. There was absolutely nothing for these people. And I thought, do I want to invest five or six years and not have a job? I, When I left home at 18 to go to college, I was never expected to boomerang back. That's was, good because was, a lot
0: of kids are expected to come back.
2: Yeah. No, they wanted me to go out and become self-sufficient. That was the expectation. That's wonderful. And so I, I saw that this wasn't going to go anywhere with regard to a job. So I actually dropped out of the program. And I just said, well, I've made a mistake. This really isn't for me. But Lonnie gets out of his basic training and he starts over here. And I'm kind of a little bit lost what to do. And I took a job down. It's a hilarious story. I can tell it real quickly. But I took a job down at a bookkeeping company. And I remember the first day when I applied for the job, the thing I learned quickly is I didn't want to tell anybody I already had a bachelor's degree in physics, all right? So, but I mean, my boss knew that. But the person I was going to work for said, well, we got to figure out where you're going to fit in here. Well, see, here are these tickets from all these doctor's offices, and they did medical billing. And he said, here's this little thing that's all the, it's the alphabet. I want you to take these tickets and alphabetize them. And my test to get that job was to alphabetize these tickets by people's last names. I got the job, obviously. Yeah. And I worked there almost two years. Almost two years. Yeah. While he was getting his master's degree. Okay. Well, I spent time with him coming over to the Bird Center for or the Institute of Polar Studies at the time for talks and for, you know, just getting to know people, got to know some of his... The, people he was going through graduate school with, etc., And I saw an advertisement that said, are you interested in climate and weather? And I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, meteorology and atmospheric science is just applied physics. I might be, I can do that. So I filled it out, and I got a fellowship. So I came my first year here on a full fellowship, and it was in the electrical engineering department because that's where... The Atmospheric Science Program resided at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's how I got started. But because I was here on campus, I got to go over and take advantage of all the wonderful lectures and meet the interesting people over here. So I quickly got sucked in. So I got my master's and PhD in atmospheric science here at Ohio State. Wow. But at the same time, so we're kind of tracking along. He's two years ahead of me.
0: What year time frame is this?
2: I started here in 1973.
0: Okay. And he started in 71. 71. Gotcha. All right. So,
2: yeah, I'm two years behind. So, two years for the master's, and then typically it would be three years for the Ph.D., but I had a child there in about the second year of my Ph.D. program, so my Ph.D. took four years.
0: Okay.
2: And you graduated with yours. PhD seventy six and I graduated
0: in seventy nine. Gotcha. Is a Dur- worthwhile setback?
2: It was that's very awful. worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the most that's, important
1: thing we did.
2: that's that's yeah. what we say all the time. The it's most right. important thing that we produced was to what our was daughter. daughter was you, yeah. our <laughs> daughter. <laughs> but anyway, what happened is I got involved with the ice core work too, so we kind of developed our program here together, but. With him doing more of the glaciology me doing more of the atmospheric science
0: okay and what does atmospheric science consist of
2: well it's things you know the classes i would have taken would have been like thermodynamics and dynamics of the atmosphere so it's it it's me it's kind of a, a more of an a, a, it's a meteor it's like meteorology yeah. but not for you're not preparing to become a weather forecaster. You're preparing to understand how Earth's atmosphere works. Okay. And when you think about it, he's studying the ice cores mm-hmm. at, the, at that time. And those are essentially consist of the snow that's fallen on the glacier and ultimately become ice. And it carries with it all of these constituents, the dust particles, certain chemicals, all that. Well, how does that get there? it gets there through the atmospheric circulation.
0: So you so. two were working in conjunction to develop these studies and theories and ideas at yes. the time. Well, yes. and, and now, wow, that's really cool. I don't, I'm sure there's not too many husband and wife partnerships and science out there. You guys could probably speak to that more intimately, but that's a very unique thing. That's very neat.
1: Well, it is in, in many, many respects. One of which is if you run field programs, you know what it takes. You know what being away for two months means. And and, and I think that in, if you didn't have someone who understood that, it would be a much more interesting relationship in that. That's true. Would not understand. Right. And so I think that's uh, that was a very important part.
2: And it worked out well for us because while he was running his field projects, of course, I knew what he was up to and I could take care of everything back here. Yeah. And when I was running my projects in Antarctica or Greenland, he knew what I was up to and he was able to keep things running here. Plus we had grandparents. Yes, we had grandparents. Grandparents, you know, a real gift from God for sure. Because when I was in the field, his mother would come up and help him take care of our daughter
0: and vice versa. Yeah.
2: And so what happened there is our daughter developed a very close bond with both grandparents. That's great. Yeah. Okay. It's a, that's a gift.
1: And I would argue even, uh, you know, probably a stronger bond with the father in that when the mother is gone, the father does the PTA, does the, you know, all the, whatever it is the child needs to have done. So you, you bond.
2: I think that was something that Lonnie and I really missed in our growing up, was the bonding with the father, mm-hmm. our fathers. And it wasn't that they weren't wonderful people, but they were the breadwinners. They weren't at home. They didn't stay at home to, to raise us. And essentially our mothers, I really liked the fact that Lonnie pointed out how fantastic his mother was and how resi- resilient she was in the situation where she found herself and how she was able to climb out of that and become fully self-sufficient and help two children go to college. Yeah. They helped themselves too, and, but it was the same with me. My mother was the one who was engaged with me on the day-to-day basis. Okay. And If I wanted to fish, I could spend time with my dad, but if I didn't want to watch the football game or whatever he was doing, then there wasn't a relationship there.
0: Yeah, I I think a lot of people could relate to that, especially maybe in that era as well.
2: Right. It's so different today. Don't we see it with our young colleagues? Both parents are there were now they're both parents are professions.
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: And they're both very engaged with the children. And
1: in many cases the father actually stays home and takes care of the right. kids and it's whoever has the the best career.
0: Well that was a unique experience for both of you being able to both go on expeditions. I, did they ever overlap?
2: Not, Not too often. Only, well, only once. Only once.
0: Okay. I, and they normally they normally lasted around two months or so. Two, uh,
1: sometimes three, but usually two. If you from the time you left until you got back. Sure.
2: It just depended where you were going. Yeah.
1: What part of the world? Right. Yeah. Right.
2: You know, a, a project in Greenland doesn't take as long as a project in Antarctica.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. So, I believe, if I remember correctly, your first expedition was in 1974? That was mine. That was yours, okay. What was that like? Was that an eye-opening experience for you? It was. I
1: mean, mean, yeah, 73, 74 were big years in two ways. One is, it was my very first trip to Antarctica in that winter. And to be able to actually see how big and work on a big ice sheet But then that was followed by, in the next summer, with a short expedition to an ice cap in the Andes in Peru, a tropical ice cap, which was into a third world country. And I remember really being taken aback when I landed there. And on the way from the airport to the hotel, we went by this dump. And there were people out in the dump getting food. Uh, out of garbage, and and you could see that just how much poverty there was, and to me, I, you know, I, it's the first time I had actually seen that plight of human beings. So it had a it had a big big impact on me, uh, and I've always thought, and I've uh, always told my students, you need to go out and work in another part of the world and that's for two reasons. One is to recognize what a opportunity you have in this country. And secondly, to recognize the needs of the world, because they're huge.
0: Yeah, I think we've talked about that on episodes before. And we talked a little bit ago about, you know, my experiences with study abroad and just how how eye-opening that was. I had I had never left the country until I was 21 years old. And, uh, and to go into all of these different third world countries, not just then, but in the last, shoot, 14 years, uh, it's been an eye-opening experience. And I think, I think you gain a lot of empathy from those types of exposures, uh, which, you know, not to get political, we lack some empathy in this country uh, and as human beings in general. And I think that's,
1: to your point, a huge aspect of that. I totally believe without that understanding, we will never be able to solve the problems of this planet. Uh, I mean, we're all in this together and we really need to understand each other and really understand what people are up against. Uh, And everything we can do to make things better makes for a better, more sustainable world for all of us. Is At the same time,
0: And I'm sure it's been like this throughout the course of history, but, you know, that was, that was, for the better part, close to 50 years ago. And you can still go to many countries today and see the same scenes. And we haven't made a lot of progress. You could, you could give a lot of reasons why, Um, but that at the same time is a little disheartening to me to think about, you know, last year I was in Syria and, I see the same scenes, you know, and that's a war, war-torn country, but it's just
1: disheartening, I guess. Oh, I, I would say <laughs> uh, in some ways we have come so far with technology and advancement. In other ways, as human beings, we haven't progressed in 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it is uh, very true. Ellen, when was your first expedition?
0: 1982.
2: 1982. Mm-hmm. Where
0: was that to Antarctica? Antarctica. Yeah. All
2: right. I had a wonderful opportunity. It was a National Science Foundation project. I submitted a proposal and it was funded to go. And I just I had I had the opportunity to work with a very skilled team of people. There were uh, I had my team, which was three from. Here, and we met up with three Swiss fellas, and there seven of us. And a, a, a fellow scientist like me, a glaciologist. He was a isotope geochemist from the University of Washington. Oh wow! And our mission was to drill an ice core um, at South Pole Station, not just at you know people people confuse Antarctica with South Pole, they'll say, oh, I was at the South Pole, and they'll mean, oh, I was in Antarctica. But this was actually at the station at 90 degrees south.
0: Really? Mm-hmm.
2: And it was a phenomenal opportunity. Again, the history of my life, I was the only woman.
0: What was that like? Was that a challenging experience for you, or were, were they welcoming?
2: My team was very welcoming and very supportive. But here's, here's the problem. The station manager was essentially put in charge of me. You've got this one. There were only two women on station. And so I was essentially told that, no, I can't sleep out. And it's like, you, you know what a Quonset hut is, right? The big military. Oh, kids. yes. Yeah. 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 Now, we had all, everything we had in Antarctica was military at the time. We flew with the VXC-6 C-130 team out of uh, Port Wanimi, California. Mm -hmm. Uh, The station was run by essentially military personnel and then summertime helpers that they had hired on. It's pretty rough. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, But I have to say I was always treated with dignity. And that is not the experience that a lot of women going to Antarctica have had. And I just count myself very fortunate that I always, I'll, I'll say this, I think growing up in West Virginia and learning how to get along with people from all walks of life prepared me for the field projects that I've run and the places you know I've had to go and the people I've had to go with or go and work with. And my father always taught me that to treat every person with respect, and dignity. And I've always attempted to do that. And I think that was maybe why I was able to have those experiences that were positive rather than experiences that were positive, but with some negative aspects. But just to give you an example, so I get to South Pole Station, the manager, station manager says, I'm in charge of you, and don't give me any, don't give me any problems. And or don't give me any reason to put you on the next plane home. I said, well, I won't. I'm here to do a job. Going to do my job. And my team was very supportive. But I couldn't sleep out in the Quonset hut with the team. I had to sleep under the dome. The, you've seen the pictures of the, of the geodesic dome at South Pole. Yep. And there are three boxes under there. And one of them is the, it's called the birthing area. That comes from the Navy, where you go to your berth, right? Okay. So it was the birthing area, and it was a tiny, tiny room. And I, my roommate was the only other woman on site. And she was a what's called a GFA, uh, which is a like a general field assistant. So she did whatever she was told to do. She could, you know, drive a, a D ten Caterpillar. That's
0: she, impressive.
2: Very, very. She was an impressive woman. But she partied hard. that And that's okay. That was okay for her. That was not okay for me. But we got along great.
0: Good.
2: And so that was fine. I'll just say every other field, every other project that I've been on I've been the field team leader. And until 2007 I never took a woman with me. Because there weren't any women to go with me. In 2007 I took two of our female graduate students. One was Lonnie's, that was Natalie. One was mine, that was Lee ja. and, uh, we ha- And then there we had uh, six of us. And so we had three women and three men.
0: I was gonna ask how it's changed over the years. So, so it seems like the ratio is starting to even out a little bit.
2: Yes, it is. That's great. And so that, and that worked out really great. My last field project was in 2010. It was in the Antarctic Peninsula. I was the field team leader, but there were no women on the team. Okay. But it was only because there were no women to take. At that, that just was a circumstance, a happenstance of, of the, the makeup of our field teams at the time. Yeah, okay. But uh, I know that a lot of women who went to Antarctica had terrible experiences and i can't I can't really say why, other than it was such particularly in Antarctica such a male dominated environment
0: and there's not really a way to unless you leave altogether it's probably pretty close quarters down there. you can't right. escape any negative atmospheres very easily when you're working on a small team in a no. remote setting
2: no you're and Lonnie's had the same thing on his teams, and it doesn't doesn't have to be gender related sure I mean it's uh, You can have a jerk on your team who can ruin the the project for everybody. It's very hard to manage a team like that, particularly as a woman, and they're all men, but you have to command their respect. And I would say with few exceptions, that was never a problem. But we always work our teams such that from the team perspective, we all have our jobs. We all want to achieve this goal, and we'll achieve this goal only if we work together.
0: That's good. Over the course of your career, how many field expeditions have you been a part of?
2: Let's see. Eight to Antarctica, five to Greenland, and the, the tiny one that I went with him. And we had the big, the big discussion before we went. <laughs> you can only have one boss on the field team, Right. And I'd always been the boss on mine, and he was always the boss on his. So I said, he can be the boss. Well, that was gracious of you. I'm a gracious person. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it wouldn't go any other way. (coughs) It
1: was my field area
2: anyway. I went went to Peru with him to the Kelkaya Ice Cap. Oh, wow.
0: Good deal. If you're looking for handmade West Virginia products for your holiday gifts this season, then you should check out East Wheeling Clayworks. Located at 747 Market Street in Wheeling, West Virginia, East Wheeling Clayworks is a working ceramic studio that offers wholesale and retail sales of their products as well as non-ceramic household items. From coffee mugs and bowls to pots for your garden and kitchen plants, you can be assured that every piece they sell has their stamp of approval. One of the other great things about East Wheeling Clayworks is that they provide a platform for local artists to display their own individual work. So as the holidays approach us, be sure to go check out their store in person or visit them online at eastwheelingclayworks.com. How do you, how do you prepare yourself for a trip, especially the first time, to a place like Antarctica? I, I would imagine there's a lot of nervous feelings, some apprehension. How do you get your mindset ready for something like that?
2: Well, at the very beginning, my very first field project, 1982, that was my first time to leave the country, and I did not know what to expect.
0: That's a big, big step. First country to go to, big step. first big continent to go to.
2: But I want to give great kudos to the National Science Foundation who funded the project. The people going to Antarctica were brought together as a group at a resort, a, a, a resort area over in the Shenandoah River Valley. And I don't remember the place. But essentially, we came together, and what they wanted to do was to tell us what we can expect. It was a, what you can expect, this might happen, and what do you do in that situation? So they gave us excellent preparation. Good. So that, I think, really helped smooth the way. And then when you get to Antarctica, the, the first thing you do is you go to like a field camp. It's called, I forget what they call it now, we just called it field camp, but it was how to work on the ice, how to repel, you know, how to do rope work, uh, how to make a, a shelter and live in it if you get caught in a whiteout. What do you do if you're out and whiteout comes and you can't move at all? What do you do and how are you prepared for that? And if you're snowmobiling, what happens if, if your skidoo breaks down and how do you deal with that so we were very well prepared from, uh, they called it snow school. Yeah, like okay. So we all went to snow school. Do you do
0: crevasse rescue and different things like that? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, there's a lot that goes into that, yeah. especially from a medical standpoint. So that's, that's really interesting. And I think we'll talk about high altitude sickness a little bit here shortly too, but that's something that you've had to uh, prepare for, Lonnie, uh, I'm sure on many expeditions.
1: It's absolutely essential you know safety if you're in a remote part of the world uh your your whole expedition is self-sufficient and that's all the way down through the medical side and sometimes we have 60 people in these remote places and you think of all the things that can go wrong with a human being and there are no professional medical help available what do you guys do in terms of medical resources well we we are I would say our high altitude medical kit has developed through the expeditions by what we experience. you go out and you have things that people experience uh, I mean we have a basic medical kit, but then for high altitude there are certain things that uh, are very unique uh, to that setting. Our current medical kit is very large and it consists of all type of antibiotics, uh, morphine. If you're drilling and someone gets cut badly or they fall in a crevasse, you have to be able to deal with them. So you have to have splints, you have to have carriers. uh, High altitude, uh, we have gammoff bags. We can pressurize people using the air in the environment. Actually take them down 10,000 feet without actually moving them. Uh, and the beauty of that is it uses the air and the environment we, we've also taken up oxygen tanks but oxygen is limited and they're very heavy and very hard to transport Now we've drilled up to 23,500 feet wow and you're taking six tons of equipment up there uh, weight becomes a big issue
0: sure and so, then I take it you guys unlike an Everest expedition or a K2 expedition you don't have a base camp doctor that's Necessarily go in with you on
1: these? Most doctors don't want to go to those elevations and live in those environments. We do have a series of, of camps that we move the team through because every person is different as to their acclimatization to increasing elevation. The human body is remarkable in that it will produce more and more red corpuscles as the oxygen levels drop, but you have to give it time to do that. Uh, our expeditions, because we are usually up there for six weeks or more, uh, you, you can't carry enough oxygen uh, to operate. Uh, you have to acclimatize uh, to those elevations. So the uh, medical part of it is uh, extremely important. And then preparing the people before you leave. I try to find people who have been to at least 14,000 feet because it's uh, usually around 12,000 feet. You'll, if you're going to have... Some people can't adapt to high elevation. You'll start seeing the problems. We have first aid classes, uh, and then we bring in special high-altitude doctors to talk to her, You know what you're going to experience. And there's two things we're really concerned about. One is pulmonary edema. This is a buildup of fluid in your lungs. If you go up too fast, the body will excess water will fill up your lungs and you literally drown and you can die within six hours of that's uh one set of that you look for pink frothy sputum uh, tons of stuff come up mm-hmm. i mean i've had it i know really so, wow the other one and the most dangerous is cerebral edema which is a swelling of the brain and once that happens you only have about two hours and so uh These are things that we watch very carefully. Uh, We've had people who've had issues. I mean, When you ask someone, if someone comes up and says, boss, what do you want me to do now? I look at them and say, what's my name? You better know my name, because uh, I've had cases where they don't. And that's the first sign that something's not going right, and then we, we move them down to one of the lower camps until they adjust.
0: Do you ever pre-dose with uh,
1: Diamox or Acetazolamide? No, but we have had the team divide up in half. Some half will take it and half won't. I'm always on the one that won't uh, because uh, my experience is, at least for me, it doesn't work. But my recommendation to every field member, see your doctor. If they recommend it, you take
0: it. (laughs) While we're on a medical question, let me, let me ask you this. So you recently told us you hold the world record for highest elevation um, for someone with a heart transplant. Is that correct? How? What elevation did you reach and when did you have a heart transplant?
1: I had a heart transplant on May 1st, 2012. Okay. And I just had my ninth year checkup. Good. So heart's really Doing good. well? It's doing fine. Good. It'll be going long after I'm gone. Uh, uh, But it was in 2015 in the western Kulun, far western China, far northwestern Tibet. Uh, We were drilling the glia ice cap at 22,000 feet. Wow. And I had a medical doctor.
2: That was one of the first, one of the rare opportunities to have a physician go with us. Okay.
1: And this was a high-altitude medical doctor I had met in Peru. He actually practiced in Miami, but he had. I met him when he was working for a U.S. mining company, taking care of high-altitude medical issues. Uh, and we became friends, and he actually was uh, uh, Ron Goodsman. Uh, he was originally from Bolivia, and he was the first one to diagnose my heart issue in a little hospital in Peru. Really? And, and that's because he dealt with people who had high-altitude issues, and he, could, uh, uh, he knew what tests to make. And, I mean, we're at 800 feet here in Columbus, and uh, the general feeling is that, you know, if this guy has gone up to 20,000 feet, there can't be much wrong with him. But he was the one who diagnosed congestive heart failure and the fact that the heart was 20% bigger than it should have been in, back in 2009. But he went with me later, after the heart transplant, to China, uh, to this glia ice cap. So he was there to actually monitor me and take my pressure and pulse at 22,000. Wow. And so. That's amazing. uh, Yeah, and he he didn't realize the earth could be so cold. (laughs) He was mainly a tropical guy. Yeah. And it it was minus 35 (laughs) in your tent at night and Oh, he he suffered poorly.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He still talks about that to this day.
1: (laughs) No, he does. He does. Uh, they
2: keep in touch.
1: Uh, Good, good. Now he's uh, he's uh, we're we're probably in contact every two or three weeks. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. How how many expeditions have you gone on in your life?
1: Sixty-four. Sixty-four. Wow. No other time in human history would that even be possible. I mean, we move six tons of equipment into these remote parts of the world in these foreign countries with all the permits that are required. Especially in a
0: place like China, who's
1: a little bit more closed off. Oh, it is truly uh, uh, remarkable. Uh, I mean, uh, in our biggest year, we drilled in three different countries in one year, moving six tons of equipment to each of these countries bringing out four to five tons of frozen ice core, keeping it frozen, refurbishing the drills, going back out. Um, But only in this day and age, with aircraft, Kevlar cable, solar panels, would it have been possible to do that, to run so many expeditions.
2: But I think you need to also credit your team.
1: Oh, I uh, I always do. I mean, uh, I've been blessed over the years to have a tremendous team that... Um, it sounds like you have to be pretty physically
0: fit to be a paleoclimatologist and glaciologist.
1: If you're going to be a high-altitude paleoclimatologist... Now, yes. if you
2: want to drill cores and corals down in Bermuda... Okay. Maybe not.
1: Maybe not. All right. <laughs> but the uh, uh, the field team, our, our field team is international. Generally, when I run an expedition to a foreign country, there will be one or two of the field people that I meet that stand out. And we uh, form a bond. I have a, a Russian colleague, Vladimir Mikhailenko. He's worked with me ever since relations were normalized between the Soviet Union and the U.S., and we were the first exchange scientists for that. Wow. And, uh, you know, back in the, the 70s and 80s, uh, the U.S. was reaching out to uh, opening up the world. I mean, and the first people to go in are scientists. So uh, for the Soviet Union, uh, we were there two years before it fell. And then in China, uh, we were there shortly after relations were normalized.
2: You were in the first wave of scientists
1: who went. Yeah, I, I I was actually on an expedition in Peru, and I had to leave that expedition to go to Virginia, to the National Academy of Science, one-week orientation program for going to China. And uh, all the things you could ask for, what you couldn't ask for, this was 1984, and they... Uh, uh, because I was going alone uh, for three months, I knew no Chinese, and most Chinese didn't know any English at that time. So it was an experience. I can imagine. Uh, and but the objective was to find an ice cap, and we did. Later, and that you night, found
2: a best friend.
1: And I uh, I met a, a young man who was just finishing up his PhD on the water discharge in the Urumuchi River in the far western. China, uh, Yao Tang Dong, and uh, we became friends, and he and I we would go for walks, we'd talk about glaciers and the future, and so he switched over to glaciology. He came here, spent a couple years with us, he went to France, spent a year or two there, uh, and then went back to China, and he uh, worked his way through, he became the head director of the Lancho Institute of Glaciology, and then later uh, moved to Beijing. And in 2002, we launched what we call the third pole, uh, actually it was the third pole research institute at that time, which was to bring research, all kind of research across the Tibetan Plateau together under one organization. And he became a member of the Chinese National Academy of Sciences, he has a campus in Beijing and one in Lhasa. Uh, I'm a member of the Chinese, former member of the Chinese uh, National Academy of Sciences. And in 2009, we, we launched what we call the Third Pole Environment Program. And three scientists, uh, uh, Volker Moosberger from Germany and I and Yao, we met in Chicago. And we came up with this idea of bringing together the nations in that, 14 different nations that depend in some way on water or resources coming from Tibet. And a lot of these nations are at war with each other. You know, India and China don't get along. and Pakistan don't get along. And the whole idea was to start communication, scientific communication, mm-hmm. uh, to standardize science between those nations. And this program has grown uh, We opened the first third pole environment office in the Western Hemisphere here in this institute in 2016. Uh, We have opened one in Sweden. Just before the pandemic, we opened one in Frankfurt, Germany, and we're looking to open one in Lima, Peru. But it's about training the next generation of young scientists, uh, researchers in these areas. So I would say that uh, one thing about being a scientist is that we probably better than any other discipline can build relationships I mean we don't make a product we don't sell anything nothing that I do is top secret Uh, and the and we study a common issue in in today's world which is climate change and how people are being impacted by that and uh, the first thing understanding people is communication and if I've learned anything from 64 expeditions is that once you get away from governments and you get to know the people we're all the same we have the same concerns about how we're going to make our living how are our children are going to do what's their health and I think this is to me is very optimistic about the future the basic human being is by and large very good and and I believe that at the end of the day this is what will carry us through some huge challenges that we're currently facing
0: and this is not when a lot of people think of climate change from my age group they probably go back to 2002 an inconvenient truth Al Gore a little bit more notoriety at least from my age group but this is not a new thing that's happening this has been going on for a while correct
1: I first testified U.S. Senate on this subject in 1992, and I was very optimistic at that time. It was, to me, it was all about having the data. Once you have the data, you can make the case; policies will change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's not the case. Too many vested interests, too many people to lose resources, and we've lost a lot of time. And the problem with climate change, it is about what is. We study geology, physics, chemistry. Climate is about geology, physics, and chemistry. It's about data. It's about facts. Facts don't change. You deal with facts. All it may, you don't have a choice. You may stall and you may have dire consequences by not acting. But in the end, you will act because you're not going to have a
2: choice.
0: Right. Thank you for joining us on Creeks to Peaks the Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians both near and far. If you enjoyed the podcast, want to hear other West Virginia success stories, or would like to donate to other Flag Spruce Initiative projects, please visit www.flagspruce.org. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear any recommendations you have on other people that you might consider part of West Virginia's understory. Thanks, and have a good one.